Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Angelica Lindsay Ali is a community scholar and certified sexual health educator for the Muslim community. At the age of 23, her interest in researching sexual education as a Muslim woman provided the basis for a career in the field of public health for the last 15 years. She continues to work with Muslim women through her work as the Village Auntie, a nickname she's adopted on her journey helping Muslim women to reclaim an approach to sexual education that is firmly rooted in the role of sacred sexuality within West and East African cultures. Her expertise in sexual health, her religious training, her African heritage and her own experience navigating sex as a Muslim woman provides the foundations on which she's challenging and unlocking conversations around sex in the Muslim community with a mission to make practical sexual education accessible. I invited her to answer some hard-hitting questions about the role of sexual pleasure in the life of a Muslim woman. I'm Sara and this is Small Talk with Angelica Lindsay Ali. Quick disclaimer, we're speaking on subjects of a sexual nature explicitly in this episode, so some of the language may be unsuitable for your surroundings. Angelica, what's the difference between love and intimacy in Islam? Okay, so in Islam, there are three primary types of love that we talk about. Um, There's hope, which we get the word habibi, habib from, and that's the opposite of hatred. It's affection and attachment. And so it evokes the idea of growth after something has been cultivated. So we can look to Surat al-Baqarah, verse 261, where it's the example of those who spend their wealth in the way of Allah is like a seed. And seed in Arabic is hope. So it's something that can grow. Uh, this is the type of love that we want to grow within our marriages and relationships. Then there's also Muwadda which is an expression of love through the act of giving. So this is love that involves an action. Then there's also mahappa, which is the desire for something that you know or deem to be good. So the love of a man for a woman, the love that people of knowledge have for virtue or wisdom. And it's a love that is based on will. Intimacy is a personal connection that you have with a person. And intimacy is not discussed in Islam the same way that we discuss it in Western society. But there are instances of various types of intimacy within Islam. So in my teaching, I teach about six different types of intimacy. There's physical intimacy, which is a no-brainer. There's spiritual intimacy, praying together, making dua together, making dhikr together, intellectual intimacy where you engage in discourse with another person, experiential intimacy where you develop closeness through actual action and experience. The difference between love and intimacy is love is something that is based on will and decision, especially in Islam. 
Based on Angelica's religious training, there are clear and drawn out parameters around what can't take place between two Muslims before they're married. But she also believes there isn't much of a foundation of understanding about what can take place in the Muslim community. Spiritual intimacy, a bond over religious inclination, is one of those things she believes can develop and even provide the solid foundations for a good and healthy sex life. It's a nuanced issue, but a lack of awareness or understanding about how to prepare for good sex is deeply rooted in the lack of sexual education in the Muslim community. Angelica believes that Muslim sex education needs to be straightforward, grounded in the deen, and started early on in life. It's a more practical approach to sex education as opposed to a rather common focus on the prohibitions, turning it into something people look forward to rather than something that they're afraid of. We have girls finish university, guys finish university and get a job, and then we want to rush them to get married. And in the months leading up to the marriage, we sort of squeeze as much sex education as possible into that time after we spent an entire lifetime telling them to stay away from the opposite sex. Muslim sex education should focus on proper anatomical names for body parts. It should focus on the mechanics of sex. And it should steer away from being afraid to talk about sex. Because I've heard parents say, well, if I teach my child about sex, they're going to want to go out and have sex. And the reality is that human beings often have a craving for physical intimacy. And that can happen at various points in life. It doesn't happen just because you start talking about it. How have ideas of sex and intimacy been misconstrued in the context of Islamic religious education and potentially by male figures as well? Uh, What do Muslim women need to know? The primary misconception that I face is that women do not have a natural inclination towards sex. I've heard this personally. I've heard this from imams, from husbands, from wives, from mothers and fathers, and it's just simply not true. And it makes it difficult when couples go through premarital counseling with an imam and they're told, brother, you know, you need to make sure that you speak softly to your wife and that you're gentle with her. And sister, you need to make sure that you fill his physical needs. When the reality is that men also need sweet words, they also need gentle touch. Women also need sex, and that's a huge misconception. We're, we have imams and religious leaders who take on the form of lay biologists. They suddenly, you know, grow a biology degree and start talking about the different biological natures of men and women and testosterone and estrogen. And the reality is that a lot of that is based on falsehood and based on a cultural viewpoint that centers male pleasure and decentralizes female pleasure, which in reality goes against what Islam says in terms of sexual activity. Why do you think there are taboos around women's sexual pleasure in the Muslim community? And what issues crop up the most? So three primary issues come up. The main issue is women have not had an orgasm. I've had several women say, I have five children. I've never experienced orgasm. I've been married for 15 years. I've only experienced orgasm twice. And they're afraid to talk about this to their husband because they don't want him to feel emasculated or they don't want him to feel that they don't enjoy sex, but they're not getting the full range of pleasure. The second issue that often comes up is women are often blamed for male uh, infertility or male erectile dysfunction. So if the husband has any problem with getting uh, an erection or becoming aroused, a lot of times the wife is blamed 
as being not pretty enough. She's not stimulating him enough. And that's another issue that comes up. The third issue that women deal with a lot, and this comes up in every single workshop, is body positivity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Women of all ages, all sizes, all body shapes report feeling that they just don't feel sexy enough because they don't compare to, to some ideal, whether that's a cultural norm, whether that's a societal norm, or whether that's something that they see on television. And that feeling of being less than affects their performance in the bedroom and sometimes even affects their ability to become aroused. Some of us may struggle to reconcile building self-love and a sexual identity whilst also juggling concepts of modesty. How can sexual confidence thrive in a space where shame is often conflated with modesty? The blame or fear attached to the female sexual experience that Angelica mentions here is something she counters by encouraging women to root themselves in an understanding of womanhood. Angelica says womanhood is distinctly informed by her African heritage and the way the women she looks up to have moved in the world. According to Angelica, it's a form of self-love that's a critical building block of sexual pleasure for women. We confuse the two. I I think Muslim women are the first ones to confuse shame and modesty. We're taught from a very young age when girls start to develop, cover your body, pull your hijab over your breasts, um, don't wear this uh, article of clothing, don't talk about having a menstrual cycle. We're taught from very early on to be ashamed of our bodies. And that has nothing to do with how we feel about ourselves. That has to do with someone else's fear or discomfort at our change and our growth. Modesty, however, is a choice that you make. So while I can be bold and I can be strong and I can be intellectually confident, it doesn't mean that I have to be half naked, for example. It doesn't mean that I have to Um, use a lot of curse words, for example. I could do that, but modesty is a choice that I am making in how I choose to express my womanhood. So if I choose to cover my body, I feel that I should be given the same amount of respect as a woman who doesn't choose to cover. If I choose to speak out about controversial issues, if I choose to be disruptive, I expect to be respected the same way as a woman who chooses to be more quiet and demure. I want to teach women how to love themselves just as they are and how to embrace all the parts of themselves and and realize that the breadth and depth of womanhood is much more vast than we've allowed it to be. And I think that once a woman can take control of her life, once a woman can love herself, she can feel sexy in her skin, it automatically translates to a better experience with physical intimacy. Um, Angelica, Amalia have just launched a sex education survey for our community and beyond, which kind of functions as a database of sexual experiences that we hope will help women to navigate this area of their lives. One of our submissions struck us and we wanted to probe you about it. It reads like this. There are many guys out there that are watching porn and enacting very violent sex with women. I thought for 13 years that it was normal. You just get called a and slapped up during sex. Only now have I realized it can be something more. I wish I had other Muslims to talk about this with growing up. There was just such a silence about it all. Now, you've spoken about porn being a performance and therefore not a valid means of sex education. Can you expand on why it functions as such a bad resource? What would you say to Muslims who are watching porn? Porn is a performance. It is scripted. It's highly scripted. It's edited. It is... Porn is 
really, especially male-centered porn, it is a display of power and coercion. It is not at all how regular, normal people have sex. And I'm not saying this as an outsider looking in. I'm saying this as a person who's worked in public health for over 16 years. I've worked with people who have been a part of the porn industry, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. And they can tell you that literally everything that you're seeing is not reality. The expressions that people make when they reach climax, even the, the corny scenes leading up to the, the sex act, calling people certain names. And there are some really depraved forms of porn out there um, that sort of take things to an even deeper extreme. But porn is not meant to be instructional at all. It's meant to appeal to a certain sensibility when it comes to sex. And unfortunately, we've made sex such a taboo topic to talk about in the Muslim community that when people are curious about sex, if you dig long enough, you're going to happen upon porn. And if that's been your first interaction with sex, you can believe that this is how it's supposed to go. The issues that can arise out of relying on porn as a means for sexual education, an example of which being porn addiction, may be further amplified by a general unwillingness in the Muslim community to talk openly about these damaging sexual experiences. These conversations are buried deep in long-standing taboos around sex, which for the large part is due to the conflation of concepts like shame and modesty, as Angelica's mentioned. Angelica believes it's because we don't have a full understanding of Islam as a sex-positive religion. We don't understand our bodies and we don't really understand that Islam is an educational resource for all matters in life. For her, the Prophet peace be upon him is not only a spiritual example, but an example of how to navigate relationships and sex. You can't tell me that sex is a taboo topic when there are a hadith that talk about the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, visiting each of his wives on the same night. This is instruction that we should be taking. We take the parts of the deen that we understand or the parts of the deen that work with our cultural norms, and that is what we expound upon. But sex needs to be a part of the conversation because it is the very act by which human beings are created. And we've done ourselves a disservice by not being more informed about sex and how to talk about it within the confines of Islam in a healthy, safe way. And we have to change that or else we're going to continue to see a cycling of bad sex in the community, porn addiction, and the variety of sexual malfeasance. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Happens 
in the Ummah. Angelica, you mentioned talking about issues within the confines of Islam in a healthy and safe way. And you also mentioned that one of the most common issues Muslim women face with their sex lives is an issue reaching orgasm. We've had another contribution to the sex survey that reads like this. A controversial footnote. I find that masturbation really helped me to learn what kind of touch I like and what I need to do to orgasm. In order to orgasm with my husband, I usually stimulate my clit during intercourse and in an ideal world, I'd love my husband to do it, but somehow he can't do it right. So instead of leaving me on the edge of orgasm after sex, feeling frustrated, this arrangement helps us. Personally, I think we should rethink the completely negative view of masturbation. What are your thoughts on this in the context of your religious training and your understanding of female pleasure? Uh, masturbation is a touchy subject because there is a difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. The majority of Islamic scholars say that masturbation is haram, so completely forbidden, but there is a minority opinion that it's makruh or disliked. And in general, when discussing masturbation, it's talking about masturbation that's done alone. And the prohibition against masturbation, as, as explained to me by my teachers and by several scholars and imams that I've consulted is that it can make it difficult to establish an intimate relationship with a partner. But if you're talking about masturbation that's done within the context of a sexual experience with one's spouse, that's a bit different. Um, I would love for this woman to be able to come to some of my workshops because I teach a technique called kunyaza. And the kunyaza technique is specifically focused on clitoral stimulation. And I teach women how to teach their partners several different ways to stimulate their clitoris. But I think that if you're talking about masturbation that happens between a husband and a wife during the sexual experience, that does not really fall into the same category of general masturbation. And I do agree that masturbation needs to be talked about um more openly because it is something that happens a lot, but there are only certain certain acts within Islam that are prohibited sexually when it comes to a man and a woman, and masturbation isn't one of them. So I think she's fine, but I also think that the person who submitted that should probably maybe be a bit more patient with the husband and also talk about what makes her aroused outside of the sexual experience because when you're sort of in the heat of the moment, it's hard to give instructions. It's important to talk about sex during um, times that it's not so emotionally charged where you can maybe convey your point a bit better. Angelica, how can Muslim women understand pleasure before getting physically intimate? Know your body. You have to know how the female body is created. Women are far more sexually complex than men And we don't have a full understanding of what our body parts are called and how they are meant to function. The clitoris is the only organ in the human body that was specifically created for pleasure. And there's a lot that we don't know about it. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know how it functions. Some women don't even know where it is. So I I suggest that all women, whether you're single or even if you're married, Find out as much as you can about female anatomy. There are lots of good books out there, lots of good resources. Get into some classes or workshops. And if you have a friend who seems to really have it together in the sex department or someone who seems to really know more, start sister circles. Really share information. That's what the Village Auntie is about. It's about bringing back that traditional mode of peer-to-peer education where women educated other women. Talk to older women in the community. If you're not comfortable talking to your mother or your grandmother or your aunt, 
finding auntie in the message, someone that you can ask questions to, send me questions, read as much as you can, and just try to go into marriage educated about what your body was designed to do. Because I think we put roadblocks in place when we when there's a lack of understanding. But when you're armed with information, you have a much better sexual experience because you know sort of what's in your toolbox. How has traditional African femininity and sexuality impacted the way you carry out your work? I'm always fascinated anytime I make a trip back to West Africa because I see the village auntie work happening. Not 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 my village auntie work, but the work of village aunties. I have two young daughters and I remember when my daughter was four years old and her great grandmother called her over and tied her first strand of waist beads around her waist. And she was just so surprised. She's like, what is this? What's going on? And all of the women around her cousins, her aunts, even me, we all lifted up the edge of our blouses so that she could see that we were wearing waist beads also. And she felt like she was part of a secret society of women. And I love that because all of the men were shooed away from the house. They were shooed away from the courtyard. And there was just this space for all of these women of multiple generations to impart one ritual to this young girl and sort of introduce her into society of women. And that's something that I see that happens in traditional African spaces. And it really inspires me because womanhood is performed on such a different level when you look at traditional West, East, North, and South African societies. It's a lot more overt. It's a lot more open. And it's very respected. And I like that a lot because it's not something that I grew up with. And I want to make sure that other women have the experience of seeing femininity placed front and center like that. The fondness with which Angelica talks about what informs her womanhood and her experiences is the fuel for her motivation to carry out her work. The village auntie, as she's also called, is a nickname given by one of her students that aptly describes her work. And it stuck. Everything about it calls to mind her heritage as a woman of African descent. In traditional African societies, the village auntie is a pillar of the community who people can go to when their daughters are about to start their menstrual cycle, for advice when they're about to have a baby, for herbal remedies. She's invited to come and talk to women the night before their wedding, and she's even called upon by husbands seeking advice. She's the voice of reason and wisdom, making the subject of womanhood and sex entirely accessible and even a fond pastime of many. I got started on this path at the age of 23 when I had my own reproductive health issues and a woman from Senegal who was old enough to be my mother saw that I was having some difficulties and she gave me some traditional remedies. She told me to drink some Kinkley Bati from Senegal and I asked her, well, what is that? And that started my first lesson in female health and traditional remedies from West Africa. And that really set me on a path to learning more about my body, learning more about how I can heal my body, and learning more about how pleasure was an often misunderstood tool that women can use to balance their life. And it really just took off from there. How has your work impacted your personal life? How do you communicate the work you do to your children? My children are... (laughs) My children are probably 
some of the most astute and knowledgeable children I've come across. And I'm not saying that just because I'm their mother, uh, but from very early on, I've always used anatomically correct language with them. Um, I've had the birds and the bees sex talk with them from a very early age because I wanted them to know what their bodies were capable of doing, but I also wanted them to understand that there was a in place for everything. So I have a 14-year-old son, and we first had the conversation when we were when he was 11 years old, and he had a, a class in school where they were talking about human growth and development. And he came home, and he's like, "Mom, they're giving us all of this misinformation." I had to correct the teacher, and he actually made me say after class that I could tell him where I learned all this stuff from. And I think it's had a positive effect on my children because they're very confident in who they are, and they know that there are certain things that are not for them because they're not married and they're not adults and they seem to be handling the onset of puberty. I have four children. Two of them are in puberty. They seem to be handling the onset of puberty a lot better than I did because they're armed with the knowledge. And so that shows me that the things that I'm trying to teach other parents can be helpful because everything that I teach, I make sure that I model it in my personal life first. So there are some things that I won't teach because I'm like, this just doesn't work. But arming my children with knowledge has been something that's been extremely effective. Do you ever feel hesitant about putting your work out there because of the stigma around speaking on sex? And have you received any backlash? I don't feel any stigma. It may be surprising to some, but I think I've just been doing this for so long. And also, visually, I'm a person who's disruptive in any space that I enter. I'm six feet tall. I'm African-American. I wear the hijab. I wear a bio often, so I'm used to sticking out in spaces. So I've never been uncomfortable to talk about sex because being making people uncomfortable has just been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. I've gotten some backlash. I've gotten some backlash from sisters who say, except for the law, you shouldn't be talking about these things on social media. And so I asked them to point to me, point me to a post that was inappropriate. And they can't point me to a post that's inappropriate. They just say, well, you shouldn't be talking about sex. And I say, okay, well, what should I say? What have I said that transgresses the boundaries of Islam? And they're never able to tell me. I think just me being a visibly Muslim woman who's talking about sex unnerves people. But you can't really find anything that I say publicly that goes against the boundaries of Islam. Now, once I get into women's only workshops, I talk about everything. There are certain things that I will not talk about on social media because I understand the constraints of Islam. I understand being modest in public spaces. I also get backlash from men who are not religious scholars. They are not imams. And they try to tell me, I had a brother inbox me on Twitter and say that I need to do my homework and that I don't understand what I'm talking about. And he hit me with his misplaced hadith. And so I had to go into my religious training and hit him back with Dalil on why I was correct in my opinion and he quickly went away. But that doesn't happen often. Uh, I get a lot more support than people might realize. I get a lot of people who want to be involved with the work, women who want to follow me on Twitter and on Instagram, but they say my father or my husband monitors my social media so I can't follow you. 
but I follow your work despite going to your thread. So I think that there's a lot more support out there because people are hurting and they need the information. And any backlash that I get, I'm confident in knowing that I'm coming from a religiously sound background because I also have religious advisors that I go to before I introduce any topic that might seem to be too risque or too out there. I'll go and consult my religious advisors first and say, is this okay? And if they tell me it's not okay, I'll back off or I'll figure out a way to reword it. But it really hasn't happened. More often than not, I'll have Imam say, Angelica, I want you to lean in more with this topic because this is something very important that the Ummah needs to know. Angelica, what's the biggest piece of advice you could provide for Muslim women who are and aren't sexually active that would help them navigate this area of their lives? Love yourself first. Don't focus on giving your body, giving your heart, giving your mind to a partner. Be whole and complete in yourself first. You cannot enter into a marriage, into a relationship, thinking that it's going to be 50-50. The most successful partnerships are when each person brings 100% of themselves. So don't focus on a partner. Focus on loving yourself. Focus on being powerful, on being informed, and being whole within yourself. That's really what the Village Auntie Movement is about, being a whole and complete you. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Small Talk. You can find more episodes of Small Talk over on the Amalia podcast on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We'd love to get your feedback, so hit us up at contribute at amalia.com and tell us what you liked or took away from this episode. You can find Amalia on Instagram at amalia underscore com and on Twitter at amalia underscore tweets. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Sarah Amin, and music by Ryan Little, who you can find on Apple and Spotify. A massive thank you to Angelica Lindsay Ali for joining us on this episode of Small Talk. Like, share and subscribe and we'll see you on the next one. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.